to another episode of Public Problems. Um, this is Justin Bullock, and I'm here with a number of Bush School students, and they're going to show share their research with you. They've been working on a project for the first half of the semester uh, while they're working on their master's in public service and administration. Um, they have a quite interesting report that we're going to discuss today. But before we get there, I'd like to let the uh, group members have an opportunity to introduce themselves. I'm Allison Hall. I'm Erica Koniger. I'm Damo Hussein. I'm Blake Sawyer. I'm Kimberly Winarski. Excellent. Um, so thanks again for the work you, you've done on this project. I'm um, excited to talk about it. Your report looks sharp um, and excited to go over through it in some more detail as well today. So your project is titled Debunking the Myth that Private Prisons are a Better Choice for the United States. Um, so tell me a little bit about why you chose this topic. You could pick any public problem that you wanted, and you decided to focus on the relative ineffectiveness uh, of private prisons. Why is that? Uh, apparently, uh, there was a natural inherent uh, conflict when we look uh, at the private prisons. Uh, the goal of a prison is actually to rehabilitate a prisoner, whereas the main aim of a private prison was uh, to make a profit out of them. Uh, so uh, we sort of thought that there was a natural conflict in that regard, and it was it was interesting to look into it and whether the private prison were doing the job what, uh, for what they were actually hired for. Well, that was the main aim behind selecting this topic. So the first kind of, I guess, broad theoretical reason was that when you look at these types of organizations, a prison should be engaged in uh, rehabilitation, we would argue, and that private prisons have a different type of incentive because they're a private organization. Their incentives are to uh, make a profit. And the tools that they have with captive customers might be a little worrisome. So as you looked into this, what is the, what's the history? Have we always had private prisons? Has this been something we've been dealing with for Decades? Is it a more recent phenomenon? Give me a little bit of background on the the use of public prisons in the U.S. Uh, private prisons in the U.S. So we've had private prisons since the late 1800s, but they really took off during uh, the Reagan administration, and he really focused on private prisons because he doubled down on the war on drugs um, that was started under Nixon, and he was using it to target. Um, the liberals, as well as like communities of color, because he felt that they were like his two biggest threats to getting reelected, um, and so he sort of started this war to go after them. And then Reagan continued it and really pushed it. And then he was also very interested in privatization. He felt that that could really cut off waste in the government. So he contracted out to uh, private prisons um, to really help as we had all of these inmates coming in due to the war on drugs. And they've been going steady um, up until under the Obama administration. And he started to cut down on federal contracts with the private prisons. However, under the Trump administration, it has been renewed, and there are now five new contracts for private prisons. So the, the ramp up of their use, it sounds like, um, comes from... Uh, maybe two different areas. The first is just a demand for space for prisoners coming out of ramping up of enforcement in communities uh, for policing for drug use. 
And so that started as, I mean, it was really as part of Nixon's Southern strategy, right? And then picked up and ran with under Reagan. So we have more prisoners that we've got to put somewhere. So that's one piece of it. And the second piece, uh, kind of ideological piece or this, um, uh, this idea that if we contract them out, uh, it'll be just as effective, but more efficient and cut a lot of the waste. And so for, since we have all these new prisoners to, to hold them or rehabilitate them cheaper, that we could do that through the private sector. And this is part of the privatization wave that was, you know, started under Reagan and picked up and ran with a sort of the, some of the new public management stuff under uh, then Clinton and then W. And this has been kind of a, a tradition that we've been contracting out across a number of industries. Prisons just happen to be one that maybe has some concerns that we might want to talk through, right? I was going to say it kind of uh, aligns with what we read in Kettle that the uh, government agencies look to the private sector and see that as either a cost-saving uh, or benefiting as the public sector uh, doesn't do it as efficiently as the private sector. So they kind of look towards the private sector as, A, we can save money, and maybe they're doing it a little bit better, which on the, the flip side, the private companies make it look much better when they first present it to the government as, we're going to save you more money, we're going to you know cut recidivism, all the other stuff, and it turns out on the back end that that's not true. So, yeah. so tell me a little bit about some of the issues here. So uh, to me, you know, this is something that people who listen to the podcast will know that uh, we spent some time talking about before is some of the concerns with uh, the amount of people we keep behind bars, the size of the prison population. Um, but we haven't really delved into before the organizational dynamics that make it so that maybe particularly with prisons, having them have profit seeking motives is a concern. And so before we go into uh, what you have in your report here, which is the reason the costs are higher, one of the first things we mentioned is that there might be some tension between the missions. Tell me a little bit more about the tensions you see kind of inherent in particularly letting prisons be for profit. Well, I just wanted to throw out one of the first quotes that kind of hit me doing the research. Uh, it came from one of the founding members of one of the largest uh, private prison corporations, which is CoreCivic. Um, and this is a quote from him at a, a conference where he said that the fundamental principle uh, that the private prisons were made under uh, were to, quote, sell prisons just like you were selling cars, real estate, or hamburgers. So at that point, you're in turn saying that inmates are just like cars, real estate, or hamburgers. So just having that model you can only see what goes into, okay, you're, you're treating people like real estate and hamburgers. That's Well, and the other problem with that comparison, right, is that those customers that are buying cars, real estate, and hamburgers kind of freely choose to participate right. in purchasing yeah. those goods, which is a bit different than the prison population where people kind of, I mean, against their will, are customers. Uh, they don't get to choose where they go. They don't get to choose the price. This is all sort of as part of their sentencing, they're not really traditional consumers in that way. So I think that's another way that it differs from thinking about the the markets for cars or the markets for real estate. It's really, it's really odd to think about prisoners as a market when they don't really have a lot of choice once they enter the, enter the system. Um, 
So what did you find? You have here uh, costs are higher in general for private prisons. And so I imagine some of this is going to be financial costs, but some of this is probably going to be other types of costs that you talk about. So in whatever order that you like, tell me about some of the costs that you know in your report that are that taken together are higher for society for having private prisons as opposed to a larger focus on public prisons. So I think the first cost that we saw is that it usually costs the government about 3000 to $4,500 more to house inmates in private prisons. Um, and basically, there's more violence in these private prisons. Uh, the inmates are getting more like infractions, and so they have to stay longer. And that's running up the tab. So while the private prisons say they look like they're less expensive, they're just up front. They're already costing more by having to keep people longer. So the, the actual cost per prisoner is more. And then violence within the prisons is more, which also leads to longer uh, sentences, uh, longer time in behind bars within private prisons. The is that correct? longer time yeah. is leading to the higher cost. So initially, they say that they're cheaper, but because they have to stay for so much longer, that's leading to those extra costs. Which that it went down the rabbit hole to where uh, we can go on to the training and training hours that public uh, officials get over 275 hours of training and the private officials only get 175 hours of training. So then that comes down to how are they managing the inmates? How are we training the inmates? Uh, and it kind of showed in a couple different studies through the report that the private prisons were handing out more infractions versus using techniques to stop the fights or to prevent the fights before they were happening. And they, the private prisons are obviously okay with handing out more infractions because the more infractions they have, the longer the inmate needs to stay. So that was another conflict of interest where it was, they're cutting costs for training, so they're saving money there, but then they're also increasing their cost by handing out more infractions and then therefore the inmates are staying longer and they're getting more money on the inmates for staying longer. So they're, they're cutting costs with respect to the amount of training the employees receive while at the same time within the prisons there's more likely to be uh, violent infractions they're more likely to uh, to issue more infractions and the idea the concern there is that one these people aren't trained well enough to handle those situations and two it's in the prisons incentives for those for those workers to be issuing more um, uh, infractions so that the customer, the prisoner, stays longer, right? And so that, and that adds to the bottom line, right? That increases the revenue on the other end, right? And another um, financial cost is in, within the stipulations of the contract themselves. So even if upfront um, a private prison is saving the government money, there comes a point where if, if their rooms, um, if their beds aren't full, they can charge the government a fine. So they've even charged the government, you know, millions of dollars if they don't have their beds full. So either way, they're getting money um, for from the government. So this purpose. one seems particularly devious to me, right? Mm -hmm. So the idea is that in the contracts with the state, that they are guaranteed a specific number uh, to have full beds or exactly. a specific number of prisoners. So this is just another... Goodness. This is just another like incentive to keep people, more people in prison by contract. And they get to pick who they want in those beds. 
So they often go for like the younger. So I was waiting for us to kind of get to recidivism first before we hit this point, but um, the recidivism in private prisons, this recidivism rate is a lot uh, different than the recidivism rate in public prisons. And I think that that's something. Yeah. And to touch on that, there was a study conducted in Minnesota that found that uh, private prisons were 13% uh, more likely People that go to private prisons were 13% more likely to be rearrested, and then 22% more likely to be reconvicted. So that's another kind of going down the rabbit hole. That's costing us more money in the long run because whatever crimes they're committing when they get out, they're not being rehabilitated in prison. So then they go out, they recommit, but then that's the kind of capitalist style of selling hamburgers where you want to make the person come back to uh, McDonald's or Starbucks to get your coffee. So if they have that kind of structure, then this is what's going on. They're not rehabilitating them, and therefore they come back and completes the cycle. So, And so a big problem with that that um, may not normally be, uh, or like I didn't read a whole lot about, but that um, there's research being done on, is that because of the way we implemented private prisons, because of the war on drugs, a lot of the prison population in private prisons is, you know, younger men, but are also more people of color. Um, and so some private prisons contract, contractually um, require that they get, you know, the younger, the healthier prisoners because they cost much less to incarcerate. Um, they don't have to go through, you know, deal with the medical costs or any other adjustments in that manner. But um, that leaves, I guess, a racial disparity in the type of, not necessarily care, but the type of incarceration that certain individuals are getting based on um, what their offenses are, um, but also the color of their skin. And so when we're talking about the higher recidivism rate in private prisons, and then having, as we talked about in class a couple weeks ago, um, the war on drugs are more negatively affecting you know communities of color than it does white communities, we see that um, a potential for that, like that problem to double over. So it's like we start with the problem here and then it gets worse because they get worse care in the prisons and usually sends them back. You can see how maybe it exacerbates some of the, some of the racial disparities and treatment within the prison. So we have, which we don't, but we have gone over this in some detail in previous conversations with students. But to kind of put this in context, and this is an issue with private and public prisons in the U.S., right? And it's really a consequence of the war on drugs. So we know from survey research that the amount of drug users by race is about the same. But we know that as part of the war on drugs, uh, communities of color, particularly men of color, black and Hispanic men, were significantly uh, more likely to both be arrested, significantly more likely to spend more time behind bars, and in this case are more likely to be in the private prisons um, where the treatment is is even uh, arguably inferior to what they would get in the public prisons. So this is just kind of another piece of this that is systematically discriminating against uh, black and Hispanic men. Um, yeah, there are so many claws that this had. And it, and it spider webbed out into a lot of different avenues that uh, could have completely been a project all by themselves. Uh, and we quickly realized that and had to rein ourselves mm -hmm. in because it was so interesting to go and see all that. So, yeah, the history of prisons and the, uh, the prison system in the U.S. I think is is really interesting. And 
the you, you've done a nice job, I think, limiting to the public-private comparison. Because to your point, this could be a whole another, and it has in other classes has been a whole school-to-prison pipeline we talked about, and there's a war on drugs that have already that we've talked about. So I like that you that you focused uh, on the differences between public and private prisons. But in putting it in, in the broader context, it really is kind of, um, you know, I think it's one of our human rights issues in our country of the day, right? That there's still so many people behind bars in this country relative to other countries, and that so many more of them per capita happen to be from communities of color, and particularly men. And it's devastated those communities and has all these, these trickle effects. Um, okay, so going back to the distinguishing features between public and private prisons. We talked about um, how it ends up being more costly. We talked about how violence and infractions are more common, both in private prisons. We've talked about uh, employees get different levels of training, inferior or less training in the private prisons. And we talked about the recidivism rate being higher for private prisons as opposed to public prisons. I remember from your report, there's at least one other reason that you mentioned, which I believe is contraband. Mm -hmm. And so tell me a little bit about why that was one of the distinguishing features for the, for the reasons that the cost of private prisons is higher. So we, are, we looked at a Department of Justice report that came out, I believe, in either 2015 or 2016. But that was the report that really, um, I think, swayed the Obama administration, uh, that their findings that... Um, swayed them from making choices away from private prisons. Um, but basically the issue with contraband, um, as defined by this report, is that contraband was for the most part either cell phone use or drug use. And so, um, you know, the difference in drug use, or the reason that is important may be obvious, um, but contraband use might, or cell phone use might not be, why that's an issue might not be so obvious. But um, the more cell phones you have within a prison, I guess, the idea behind it is that more there's more um, ability to organize criminal enterprises within the prison or even without or outside of the prison, and so um, there's a lot more access for the prisoners in that sense. But there's also like cell phones can also be used as a currency within the prison, and that was found to be much higher in private prisons. Yeah, and so that even goes back to why is the contraband coming in? Um, and then it's, it goes into, we did a, a study on the pay. So we went and looked at all of the pay uh, between the private sector and the public sector. And the public sector average salary, if you were to work at a Bureau of Prisons, would be $49,424, whereas the private sector's average was only 28205 So it's a difference of $21,000. So, right. Yeah. So you've got 100% difference in pay, and those guards come in. Well, they're more susceptible then for taking the bribes, taking uh, contraband and bringing contraband in for inmates. So, again, that could be an entirely different report. But then it also goes back to then once they're found with cell phones or contraband, what happens? They get an infraction, their time gets longer, and we're down the, the same cycle again. So, yeah, it was interesting. Like, all of these factors come in, but when you really look at it, it where like the private prisons are like, we can cut costs is with their employees. Like mm -hmm. that's like their biggest, like <clears throat> when you look at their plan, they're like, we can do it. And that's because they have fewer employees. So 70%, 70% of the costs was yeah. how they cut 
the employee's pay and the employee's benefits. The employee pay, employee benefits, their training hours, both like before they even start at the prison and then like continuous education while they're working. And then there's also fewer employees in private prisons. So at like the federal level, there's about like five to six inmates per guard. Um, and in private prisons, it's about one or 10 prison prisoners to one guard. The ratio is so, almost double again. Yeah. yeah. So they're just all these little areas. So. Goodness. Well, when you look, when you kind of paint the picture, it um, doesn't seem surprising then that the that private prisons have higher costs than public prisons when you take, a, you know, not just the financial cost, which is clearly one, but the overall quality, the overall mission of what prisons we think should be in 2018 seems like a pretty, um, just a pretty bad idea. Um, so how do we fix this? Um, you talked through a few uh, solutions in your report. And so how might we go about beginning to tackle this given entrenched interests and, and given what we know about private prisons? So we looked at several different possible solutions um, and kind of going off of what we learned from the Kettle Book and a lot of the core organizational problems that they have. So one of the things, um, just to reiterate, this is a contract administration issue. So we're contracting out to a private company, and that means we should be setting standards, we should be negotiating effective low-cost programs and overseeing these results. And really, none of these things are happening. Um, so one of our solutions is, like, let's try to really strengthen these contractual agreements. And one of the ways we do that um, is really setting our standards higher, particularly with um, staffing standards and making sure that they you know, we're not going to fund them or support them if they don't meet these staffing standards. And in general, um, just redefining contracts could possibly help, um, meaning that contractual agreements have a lot of fiscal accountability in a sense, because we do know that uh, up front, at least, you're costing the government less. However, we really are lacking a lot of um, process and program accountability because we, governments, um, state and local, um, excuse me, state and federal governments will spell out what our standards are, but they don't spell out how we expect you to meet these standards. And in addition, uh, private prison corporations don't have really neutral assessors, so they pay people to accredit them and to judge if they're meeting these standards. So there's obviously a conflict of interest there. Um, so there are, you know, there's a journal corporation that says, you know, we, maybe this would be helpful. However, even though it seems to tackle, you know, the source of substandard care, violence, recidivism, I think, we all think that even if staffing standards and contractual agreements are clarified, um, they're still going to be cutting costs in other areas. And ultimately, if you are requiring them to meet staffing standards, it's going to cost more to support private prisons, and it makes them more obsolete. So um, additionally, um, we didn't mention this earlier, but there's a lot of um, lobbying and political pressure and conflicts of interest that governments have turned a blind eye or turned uh, turned away when they haven't met these contractual agreements. So we have actually tried to improve the contractual agreements before. So it's been it's been shown that it's not been very effective. Um, it's good an idea, but in practice, there's too many conflicts of interest. Um, secondly. 
um, the main conflict of interest that we talked about was is the fact that private prisons are seeking a profit. So one of the solutions that has, has been proposed is, well, use this incentive um, to try to make positive change and reform. So those would be the funding incentive solutions. Um, and we use that to strengthen accountability. One of those would be through a private prisoner rehabilitation tax credit. And the idea is that the government doesn't have any more upfront cost, but they will give them more money if they meet these standards. So that's one idea. And then another is social impact bonds, which is another pay for performance contract. The idea is they, the government would still have like a loan they give to support specific projects in private prisons. Um, so in theory, like both of these allow private prisons to follow their natural incentive of let's make more money. And so the thinking is that if you provide them this opportunity, they're going to automatically want to um, improve their standards. However, even the supporters of the PTR tax credit said that ultimately um, the cost of losing a would-be recidivist is higher <laughs> than um, any tax credit they could gain from improving the rehabilitation efforts. So they argue that rehabilitation um, would be saving, you know, societal costs, but private prisons aren't concerned about that. That's not going to motivate them to, like, seek a tax credit that's um, not going to be worth more than keeping someone in prison. Um, additionally, I mean, any tax credit is going to be complex, difficult to administer, and, and similarly with the SIBs, um, why would you put money into special projects when they're supposed to be meeting these standards anyway? And it also doesn't really take into account the shareholders in private prisons that that's, they still have a big say in how, you know, not just the government, but the shareholders in private prisons have a big say in how that um, the private prisons are going to operate. So we talked about so far, um, you know, administrative solution or accountability solutions and, money incentive solutions. One of the other solutions we talked about was representation solutions. As you mentioned before, um, prisoners don't have a say in what prison they're going to, and we're not saying like they should. When you enter prison, a lot of your rights are curtailed, but there are some human rights and constitutional rights that you are supposed to be guaranteed. Um, if, for example, under the Wolf versus McDonald Supreme Court case, States, you know, prisoners have the right to due process and disciplinary hearings, freedom from cruel and unusual punishment, equal protection under the law, right to be free from sexual harassment and sex crimes, and right to access adequate medical care and mental health treatment. And we didn't touch on this as much, but all of these things are, are really not uh, being provided prisoners in private prisons. So, um, like, touched on, like, infractions, you know, you're not getting due process when you're just handing out infractions. Um, and there's a lot higher rates of sex crimes and violence and people not getting the adequate care they need. So the idea behind this is to, like, if, if the laws are unclear, if these private prisons are not being held accountable for these laws, we need to make this clear and they need to be held accountable for when they are not meeting those obligations. Um, and again, I, th I think this has a lot of really moral and democratic value. I think this is really important. However, just as with the accounting or accountability solutions, um, by itself, it, it's kind of ineffective because they're still going to try to cut cost and try to, um, you know, say, well, we're meeting these standards, but 
um, you know, their core incentive, again, their core mission is to make profit. So um, our final, uh, like, solution that we offer um, is just, like, phasing out these contracts between government and private prisons. And so we really feel like it was important to address these other possible solutions, particularly the incentive ones, because that speaks to the, you know, the reason that private prisons operate. However, all these kind of point to the fact that they're not going to be effective or if you really, um, if you really want to implement them and are done effectively, they ultimately make private prisons unprofitable and, um, and just obsolete. So the idea of phasing out kind of attacks the core problem with all of these administrative and policy solutions. And um, as mentioned before, the Justice Department was planning to do this under the Obama administration. And this is where we have a problem now because under our current administration, we're not having, uh, you know, less incarceration. That was the reason it was actually possible then was because we were having lower rates of incarceration and lower prisoners. So we were able to like start moving prisoners from private prisons, um, start phasing out those contracts. Um, so that's just something that it's a problem. We, we think it's the best solution. We think that it um, kind of addresses all the problems that are caused by private prisons, but it's really hard to implement because we still need spaces to put prisoners when we're following these policies of, you know, zero tolerance at the border. And because we didn't mention this either, but private prisons, um, private prison corporations run most of the immigrant detention facilities as well. Um, yeah, that's a lot. Um, <laughs> uh, so a couple of those things I just want to comment on, and then the rest of the group should comment on the solutions as well. Um, I really like how you all lay out in a perfect world, we could do better contract management, right? And the way we might do that is try to align incentives a little bit better than they are here. We would have standards uh, that were really clear and enforcement mechanisms and means for recourse and to be very transparent, right? That would be, you could probably make, arguably, at least theoretically, if you wanted to take that endeavor and do it well, you might be able to do this. But to your point, to do it well, to hold them to those standards, essentially uh, makes them unprofitable. Um, and so that's going to push them out of the market by forcing them to raise the standards and change the incentive structures so that uh, so that they're held to the standard we would like. Um, it's interesting to me, anyways, to think through if we're stuck with private prisons, the ways in which we might push for them being reformed, although I share your uh, pessimism in that this isn't just poor contract management in this domain. We are in general bad at contract management, uh, particularly at the federal and state level. Um, so this isn't a new. This isn't the only area that we have evidence for that trying to design contracts from the government standpoint and then trying to design them well so that you get the outcomes, and then not just design them well, but then also have the appropriate oversight mechanisms, which is the piece that really, like, we seem to not be able to do well. And maybe there's some reasons why there. Maybe there's lobbying efforts. Maybe there's, you know, concerns about costs there. But no matter how you look at it, 
even given these potential solutions, it really seems unlikely, given the history of these things, that there's enough um, political will or enough um, resources to rein pri these private actors back into standards that we think count as basic humane treatment, following our basic obligations under the Constitution, basic obligations for human dignity, even for prisoners. Just given this history um, and, the, and the intensity of the incentives and the fact that you have a quote-unquote customer that doesn't get to choose and is held captive, it really seems like it's hard to reform these in a way that gets us to an organization that is about rehabilitation and high quality standards. Um, so that seems really unlikely to me. I don't think there's any good evidence that we can do that. Uh, I was going to say, when you take profit out of a for-profit business, it's not a for-profit business anymore. Mm -hmm. So therefore, mm -hmm. you know, it's done. Mm -hmm. So <laughs> yeah. that was the whole thing was that if we took for-profit out of prisons, then we have prisons again. And so we're back with the government. So it kind of negates everything. So the problem is that uh, past research has apparently <clears throat> focused on more just the cost aspect of it. And recently there have been some cases where they're actually examining uh, the quality of staff that has been em uh, employed over there. One of the research was actually conducted in Florida and uh, only now uh, policymakers have started to, uh, you know, give focus on uh, not just the profit aspect, but also on, on a longer term whether uh, the quality of the staff uh, can justify uh, rehabilitation uh, programs on that aspect. And I, I think on the federal level, you're also seeing a push for transparency. There was a government accountability report that came out in 2007 that pushed, their big thing was like, we have inconclusive findings because we just don't have access to that data. And then Sheila Jackson Lee has also pushed for legislation. She's put it forward six times. It's been shot down six times, apparently. Um, but again, it was another push to make private prisons their infractions, how they give it out, um, all of their information to make it public available knowledge. So it's not that there haven't been accountability attempts from Congress. Uh, they just don't make it all the way through. Yeah. yeah. Right. And that, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, that brings me to uh, one of my last points was that this is a multi-billion dollar industry um, and that the uh, lobbying laid out in the report just from the top three was over five million dollars uh, for private prisons. Uh, and we kind of break down what went to who and, and where in the report. Um, but that kind of money backing this is, again, why it shut down six times. Uh, and, you know, this is... America, so uh, everything is uh, money-driven, but yeah. when, you, when you're talking about billions of dollars, I mean. One of the biggest uh, corporations in this sector, even point blank, said that like their lobbying is to like protect their bottom line, which is their profits. Yeah, so. which isn't unsurprising, no. um, nope. right? I mean, that's how private industry works. That's how lobbyists work. Um, so... The conversation seems to lead us to the best or one of the better solutions among the possible solutions is phasing out these contracts um, and bringing more kind of government in-house uh, implementation of prisons. 
Given this, the sheer amount of people we keep behind bars, is this feasible? Can we ramp up the amount of public prisons to offset phasing out these contracts? Is it even possible to do away with these given the amount of people we have in prison? I think it's multifaceted because, again, it's the war on drugs, it's uh, disparities, it's recidivism rates. A lot of those things have to be changed, um, but it's going to be something that happens over time. Since we didn't get here overnight, it's not going to change overnight. So we can't just say, okay, private prisons are done today and then we're out. Um, we do have to have that kind of you know, de-escalation, if you want to call it that, mm -hmm. and stop using them over time. Uh, but it's a sticky situation all around because a lot of other things have to change as well. You know, and from the aspect of lobbying that we were talking about, we've, we've sort of focused that lobbying has been done in favor of the uh, private prisons. But uh, recently there have been cases where, uh, from the standpoint of the uh, staff workers, they have been lobbying from their end also. Mm. So it goes back and forth where uh, if, if, if the staff workers are able to lobby against them, it can raise the standards of the private prisons. That's another player that we hadn't really talked about, but it's those that have stock in these companies could also use their pressure to push for better standards. might affect the bottom line, and so that there may be some inherent conflict there, but there's enough kind of public outcry or public consensus on this. That's something that shareholders could influence, for sure. Right, and I think we did touch on the other thing that was uh, the other kind of stakeholders in it would be if we did take all the private prisons away, what happens to all of the guards, their jobs, mm -hmm. their families? Uh, these are usually in remote areas. So we did look at the other avenues of we're going to take away somebody's job if we have to shut these down. And this is, again, a multi-billion dollar industry. So you have market effects, job effects, so on and so forth. And I wanted to add on, on that about phasing out. Even, even in 2016, when we were saying, oh, we're going to phase out, it wasn't all at once. So just seconding what they said, it, it's going to take time. And it wasn't even on the state level. It was the Justice Department saying, we're going to start taking a little bit, a little bit of um, private, you know, prisoners out of private prisons, and we're going to grow from there. Um, and if this was going to be revisited, we'd have to have separate policies for state level facilities, the privately run immigration detention centers that they fall under the Department of Homeland Security, not the Justice Department. So we have to consider all those things and, and how we're going to um, approach this. And um, for example, I mean, some states, Illinois and New York have already banned private prisons and uh, Louisiana placed a moratorium on them in 2001, but they later renewed their contract. So this shows that when we do make a policy to phase out, we need to have other policies that allocate more resources to like effective public rehabilitation focused prisons. So it's definitely multifaceted and it's it's not going to be something overnight as much as we, you know, we want to be rid of this problem. It definitely is a human rights issue. It's something that we have to be careful and take the time to solve it. And I think um, two last points, I guess, are that, that the drug laws also have to do with this. And so that's one thing to take into consideration, but it kind of fell outside of our scope of when we're talking about solutions. Um, but also that when we're talking about consumer choice in regards to using uh, prisons, obviously prisoners don't have the choice. The government does, um, but sometimes with these contracts, they limit themselves and it becomes kind of monopolistic in the way that once they built these private prisons, they can't really um, just move those, you know, however many thousand prisoners overnight and be like, oh, well, we don't like what you're doing, so we're just going to take our business to private prison number two over here. It's not how it works. So they really limit themselves. Um, 
with the choices that they have. Anything else that as you were going through the research for this project and reflecting on it that you think is useful or interesting for those who might listen to this? Well, I just want to say I I didn't know much about this topic to begin with. And so I I'm I think it's something we all should know about and you know, your tax dollars are going to this, you're supporting this kind of organization. And I think that's something, at least at that level, people should care about. And ultimately, on just a larger scale, I think it's really doing a disservice to America as a country when you're incentivizing keeping as many people as you can behind bars and you're not meeting that human potential, you're not meeting... Um, you know, the potential in society for our economy and everything, I think that's a huge problem that um, we should all definitely care about. Mm -hmm. Just one more thing that in context of training, uh, we have actually have sort of uh, shown that uh, private prisons actually cut the cost by cutting the training, uh, training that, that they provide to their employees. Uh, the federal laws actually state that training is mandatory, but it's silent on when those trainings should be provided. So the timing aspect is always in question. So I think laws should be much more stricter and much more strength in that regard so that uh, training on a regular basis can be provided. Anything else? Um, well, this is a uh, an important topic. It's one that... Uh, I have talked about uh, and had conversations with a number of times in this format. And I, I mean, I agree that it, it's one of the, um, it's one of the human rights issues that we face as a country, in my opinion. Um, and there are good reasons um, to have people in prison uh, for sure, but we don't have to treat them inhumanely. And this is the same thing that's playing out with some of the things we've talked about in class, which is, um, the way in which we treat uh, migrants as they come across the border, and that there needs to be a real process for political asylum. There needs to be uh, really well-resourced uh, you know, border patrol and well-resourced uh, of a number of different types of agencies to provide the resources and support that are needed while protecting security, but just blatantly uh, and blanketly kind of putting those people in uh, not great conditions or separating children from their families, which is one we've talked about in this class, just seems like a lack of planning and a lack of taking serious account of the human rights issues here. And so I think this is something that's not just playing out in the public-private prisons, but it's playing out broadly in how we think about criminalization and how we think about prisoners and how we think about their incentives. And it, you know, it really is something that we, as a society, I think need to give a lot of uh, uh, thought to. Thank you for your work. Um, this was an enjoyable conversation, and uh, thanks again.